Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we continue our series, Overwhelmed. In this lesson, Lead Pastor David Fossil asks us what we can do when we're overwhelmed with people who are hurtful or immoral. Listen as Pastor Dave draws some guidance from the Sermon on the Mount and shows us that getting or doing better is more than listening to Jesus' words. It's taking that message and applying it to our own lives. There's that spouse that deeply hurts you, in some cases took it the last step and divorced you. There's that parent that didn't really seem to love you or be there for you. There's that child that just so incredibly disappointed you. And of course there's that one relative that took advantage of you and abused you. There's that friend that betrayed you, that boyfriend or girlfriend that cheated on you and broke up with you, that classmate that bullied you, that person that lied about you. There's that one teacher that was so incredibly mean to you. Then there was that other coach that was abrasive toward you. There was that one boss that was overbearing and took advantage of you, that that co-worker that stabbed you in the back just to get ahead of you. Then there was that one manager that wrongfully and without reason fired you. There's that person at church that just plain annoys you. That waitress, when you go to the restaurant, that seems to ignore you. That driver the other day on the highway that cut in front of you. That thief that stole everything from you. That salesman that tricked you. That neighbor that just seems so unfriendly towards you. It doesn't take long to discover that People can be hurtful. And it doesn't take long when you get into honest discussions and conversations with others that every single one of us has been hurt at some point in time by an individual. Jesus, the consummate teacher, he knows this. And at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, as he's launching his ministry, the very first sermon he preaches, we refer to it as the Sermon on the Mount, the very first sermon he preaches, he has this entire section on what do you do when you're overwhelmed with people? We continue in our our series in the summer here called Overwhelm, based upon the Gospel of Luke. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. What happens when people hurt you? What happens when you're overwhelmed with with people? If you have a Bible, Luke chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. Luke chapter 6, page 720, if you want to grab a Bible in the chair in front of you or on the table in the back when you came in. Luke chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 27. Now, the Gospel of Matthew has a little bit more extensive, extensive section uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it is not as clearly marked here in Luke, but that's what is, is happening right here. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And picking it up right in the middle, verse 27, Jesus says this. He says, but, but to you who are listening, I say... Now, let me just stop right there. That kind of caught my attention. Just how he begins... Well, our temptation is to get to the quotation marks right there and to quote the teaching part, but he's teaching right at the beginning. And he's making the very fundamental point that there's a, there's a huge difference between listening to me and hearing me. Uh, you see, he, he, um, he, he's there and he's, he, everybody can hear him, but, but not everybody's really going to listen to him. Not everybody's going to apply what what he's going to tell them. And really, that's the case for every single one of us when we go to church. It's not whether or not we can, we can hear the speaker, 
The issue is whether we're going to listen to Jesus and apply what he has for each and every one of us this morning. Because the truth is, he brought every single one of us here today to get something out of his word. But to those of you who are listening, I say, I want you to love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. I want you to imagine that this, this was the first time you'd heard Jesus. You had heard about him. Everybody had heard about him in the region. People had been talking about Yeshua, Jesus, the rabbi, who was making a difference in people's lives. And everywhere he went, there were massive crowds to go hear him speak. And because you were trying to connect with God and do the best that you could, you decided to take a a day off of work to go hear him. Because that's what you would have had to do. He he didn't speak at at the pavilion late at night. You could get into your Camry and drive and go see him. No, he he was speaking like four and a half miles away. You were going to have to walk there. It was going to take you an hour and a half to two hours to get there. And then, of course, an hour and a half to two hours back. You were going to have to take a day off. So you filled out the paperwork with your boss. You got that one day off when he was going to be speaking nearby. And you went to your neighbor who who was unemployed because he'd been laid off a couple months ago. And you, you, you encouraged him to come with you. So you packed the lunch and you got there early and it was pretty neat where you went. It was a natural amphitheater. Jesus wasn't going to have a microphone and a sound system. But because of the natural conditions of where they were, it was going to be easy for everybody to hear him. By the time you arrived, there's already two to three hundred people there, which was surprising. But you were glad that you got there early because you got a really nice spot. and You you open up the picnic blanket, you put a couple lawn chairs out and, and, and there you waited. After a little while, you, you, you bought a snow cone from a guy who's making a killing because it's, it's 95 degrees and very humid. You'd been waiting for about an hour and a half. By this time, there's well over a thousand people there. And uh, one of the disciples, one of, one of the inner circle of this Yeshua Handrosi, uh, announces to the crowd that Jesus very soon is going to appear and he's going to give his talk. And you could feel the buzz. You could, you could feel the excitement in the crowd. And, and you turn to your neighbor and you're like, I, 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 I've heard and I, I hope that he does one of his magic tricks. I, ho- I heard he does magic tricks or, or miracles as they call them. I wonder if we're going to get to see one today. Sure enough, about 15, 20 minutes, Yeshua Hanrosi, Jesus of Nazareth, shows up. And, and, and it's, he's like a rock star. People, people want to just touch his coat and, and, and they're rushing him. But of course, the, the disciples, they've got it under control and organized and they keep people away and they, they finally situate Jesus in a position where, where everybody can at least get a visual contact and see him. And, and he's in a position where his voice will project and everyone will be able to hear him. And, and when he begins his talk, um, and, and as you're listening, two things catch your attention are inc- and are incredibly surprising to you. First is the length of his talk or his sermon. Did did you know that the Sermon on the Mount was a grand total of about nine to ten minutes? I mean, I want you to imagine that you on a Sunday morning, you shower, you have some breakfast, you drive to church, and all you get is a nine-minute sermon from the pastor. How would you feel? Let's close in a word of prayer, and I'll let you get going. I mean, but really, put yourself in their shoes. You took the day off of work. You walked all this distance, and all you get is nine minutes? I mean, does he not have any, anything else to say? But you see, that, that, that's the second surprise. The second surprise is actually is the content itself. You would think that in nine minutes, you, you can't really get much out. 
But what he says is so transforming. It is so bold that you end up talking about it the whole way home with your neighbor. And he starts out with something that was incredibly controversial. First thing I, I want you all to do is I want you to love your enemies. This was countercultural to what the current rabbis were teaching. You see, the current rabbis would teach that, that I was to, to love my neighbor, but I was allowed to hate my enemy. Oh, well, that makes sense. The video that we watched before, the, the last couple songs that we sang, Jesus at one point in time says, I, I want you to love each other. Well, I could do that. I mean, most of you are fairly respectable. I know most of you, you know, we kind of get along. And I can understand that. We love each other and we show and prove to the world what that means to be part of a, of a family of God. That makes sense. That's easy to do. But love my enemies is completely different. Completely different. It's completely counter to what you and I want to do. But that's what he says I want you to do. Now, just so we're clear, loving someone doesn't mean you have to like someone. It, it, Jesus is, is not saying you've got to go out to dinner for them. Do you want to play fantasy football with them? You've got to go on vacation with them. You, he's not meaning or saying, implying all of those things. You don't have to hang out with them at Christmas or go to their birthday party. Loving your enemy doesn't necessarily mean liking your enemy. Huge difference. But nevertheless... When given the opportunity, and you know who I'm talking about, that person at work, that person in your family circle, that person in your neighborhood, that just, just as, they're abrasive to you. They're like heavenly sandpaper on your life. He says, I want you to love them. And right away, he, he gives us three ways to do it. Let me show you. Let's put it on the screen. He, he says, I want you to treat them kindly, do good to them. I want you to speak to them respectfully, bless them. And then the last one is right out of the verse. I want, I want you to pray for them. So let's kind of break these out just a little bit and see if they make sense to us. You know, our, our instinct is that when, when someone hurts us, we're going to find a way to hurt them. And, and Jesus says, no, what I want you to do is when given the opportunity, I want you to treat them with kindness. I want you to treat them with kindness. I, I came across a story... Um, produced by the American Association of the Advancement of Science. Apparently, this organization has an annual conference. And at this annual conference, they conducted one of what is multiple research assignments and, and experiments and such. But, but uh, you would think that by the title, the American Association of Advancement of Science, it would be a scientific research. It would be a medical and clinical research, but it wasn't. It was done by a social scientist by a psychologist trying to observe the impact of relationships and kindness on one another. This is what they did. They, they, they randomly chose 50 doctors. And, and they decided to give them symptoms of an imaginary patient and see if they could come up with a diagnosis. I mean, this is not hard for someone in the medical profession. This is what they do in medical school. This is what they do as their profession day in and day out. There was one difference, however. Be, be, without telling the doctors, half of the group were given a nice, really bag, a nice bag of candy and chocolates. And, and, and the researcher said, this is just by way of appreciation. Uh, this is our way to say thank you for participating in our research. The study was done by a Cornell University psychologist by the name of Alice Eisen. And Mrs. Eisen came up with this conclusion to her research. Quote, we discovered that the doctors receiving the candy were far more likely 
to correctly diagnose the patient's problems. Pleasant feelings apparently give rise to altruism, helpfulness, and improved interpersonal processes. Now, there's two lessons that I learned from this story. First lesson, next time I go to Kaiser, I'm bringing a chocolate bar to my doctor. Lesson number one. Lesson number two, it's a reminder that when God asks you to be kind, it's part of his plan to make this world a better place. So I'm going to ask you, when's the last time you committed a random random act of kindness? We normally use that phrase as a random act of violence. You know, in other words, something happened bad over a year and it was just random. For no seemingly good reason. Do you do that with kindness? Or do you have to have a reason to show kindness to someone else? In other words, I show kindness because they're my friend. I show show kindness because I like them. I show kindness because I'm trying to get something from them and then be kind to me. Or do we just randomly show kindness to people? God's going to give you the opportunity as you're walking out of here and today to actually apply this. But what's going to be really interesting is when you interact with someone who has hurt you in the past, because that's the context of this passage. Will you show kindness to that person who has hurt you in the past? That's the first thing he asks you to do. The second thing is to speak to them respectfully. You know, for someone whose profession is to craft words, I find it very difficult when someone hurts me to not craft a very clever argument and through words hurt them back. Now, regardless of your, uh, 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 of your profession or your personality, I would, I would think that most of us are like that. They hurt me, I'm going to try and hurt them. We're going to even out the score. And Jesus said, I, I don't want you to do that. Elsewhere, he says, you know what? Let, t- let me take care of even and out the score. And I will. But what I want you to do is treat them kindly when you have the opportunity. What I want you to do is to speak to them respectfully. Even if you're talking about something you disagree with them, speak to them respectfully. We could spend more time talking about that, but let's just jump to the last one. Pray for them. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you did that? Honestly. That person at work or whoever that's driving you crazy, you know what we typically do? We don't talk to God about that person. We talk to each other about that person. Don't we? You're not going to believe what, what, what's their name is doing. By the way, when God says he wants us to pray for them, he's not asking, he's not allowing you to pray that they get hit by a bus. That's not what, you're not allowed to do that. What you're really doing is you're praying for their heart and your heart. You're praying for their spiritual condition. You're praying that they would reconnect with God. You're praying that they would embrace Jesus because if they're doing and saying whatever they're doing and saying that is hurting you, ultimately the, the core issue and problem is their soul. And that, more than anything else, needs to get fixed. And if that gets fixed, more likely than not, domino effect, your relationship gets fixed. And even if it didn't, the priority is taken care of. You pray for them. You pray for those who have hurt you. Our instinct is to fight, to get even, to talk about them behind their back, to sabotage them, to get revenge. Old story told about some GIs in Korea during the Korean War. And uh, these American soldiers, they decide to hire a young Korean boy to, to cook for, the, for them, to uh, do the laundry, to clean up the, the, the barrack and, and, and such. And, uh, you know, it was good for the Korean boy. He had some money. And, but uh, the, these GIs were, were jokesters. 
So they were always kidding this poor, this poor kid, you know, 15, 16-year-old kid. And they would put Vaseline on the pans in the oven things. And so he'd get Vaseline over his hands. They'd put buckets of water over the doors. He'd walk through the doors. He'd get wet. They even thought it was really funny because he would sleep there in the barracks with him. They thought it was really funny. They, well, one day they, they, they nailed his shoes to the ground. So when he got up in the morning to make them breakfast, he couldn't pick his shoes up. And they thought that was hilarious. After about three, four weeks of this, they, they realized it probably it wasn't that funny to him anymore. So they went to the kid and they said, you know, we're not going to tease you anymore. We're not going to joke with you anymore. And, of course, there was a little bit of a language barrier there, so they had to explain it. And, and, and so finally he started to understand. He said, oh, you, you, you mean no more sticky on the stove? And they said, no, no, no more sticky on the stove. No more water on the doors. No more water on the doors. No more nail to my shoes. No more nail to my shoes. He said, good, then me no more spit in your soup. Let me ask you a question. You spitting in anyone's soup? You know what I mean. You do something that they're not even aware of. But it's, it, the, the intent is to, mm, to jab them. Oh, I am, I am so sorry. I, I, yeah, no, I erased that, mm, that movie on the DVR. I didn't realize you wanted to watch it. Oh, yeah, yes, what's their names called? And you were supposed to call them back. You know, I am so sorry I forgot to give you that message. Are you spinning in someone's soup? Doing things subtly, strategically, without them really knowing about it. And, and if you dig down deep, the, the, your real reason is to kind of to get back at them a little bit. What I would like to suggest is that you go back to this passage and realize Jesus is saying, no, I want you to love them and, and how you treat them and what you say about them and, and what you talk to me about them about. Now, from this point on, it, it gets a little bit tricky in the passage, very misunderstood by many. Um, it, it, because Jesus teaches in a form known as hyperbole. Now, if you forgot what the, the, uh, your English teacher told you about hyperbole, let me, let me remind you of that. Let's put it on the screen. Hyperbole is when you speak in a way by way of exaggeration to make it memorable. You see, Jesus, he doesn't have sermon notes. He doesn't have PowerPoint slides. He doesn't have a podcast that people can go listen to. He's got to say it in a way so people will remember it. And so he would speak by way of hyperbole, exaggeration. To, to, to make it memorable for effect. Oh, by the way, in Palestinian culture, the primary way of getting someone to laugh or the primary way of using humor was exaggeration. It was hyperbole. So I guarantee you, as they're listening to Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount, every couple moments, every minute or so, you know what the crowd is doing? They're literally laughing. And they're going, that Jesus is a funny guy. That's, we don't think of Jesus as kind of a jokester, but humor and, hype, and hyperbole and exaggeration was their way of humor. So he's doing it to make it memorable for effect and to make a point. That's ultimately what he's trying to do. And in the context of loving your enemies, he makes two points by way of hyperbole. The first point is in verse 29 to 31. Let's read it. I don't have it on the screen for you, so follow uh, along with me. He says, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other also. So incredibly misunderstood this verse. One, this is talking to individuals, not nations. So, so this is not suggesting that if we as the United States of America get attacked, we roll over and play dead. Because some people have taken that to mean that. No, we have to be pacifists. This does not mean that if someone is pummeling you, you just take it. 
doesn't mean that at all. You know what he's doing here? Hyperbole. He's speaking by way of exaggeration. Look at the next sentence. He, he, says, uh, he says, if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt. This does not mean that if, if, if you catch the thief in your house, taking all your, your, your flat screen TV and your stuff, you don't also give him your debit card and the pin number. He's speaking in hyperbole. Verse 30, give to anyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. If you take this literally, you know, you could, you could borrow money from someone, not pay it back, and then quote this verse. He's speaking. Some of you are like, really? I will write that down. <laughs> no, it's hyperbole. In order to make a point. And what's the point? Verse 31. Do to others as you would have them do to you. In other words, treat others as you would like to be treated by them. Now, in another passage, he takes it one step further and says, treat others like you want to be treated, not only by them, but also by my Heavenly Father. You see, God observes how you treat others, and in some cases, based upon how you treat them, he says, okay, that's how I'm going to treat you. I want you to think about that. Because God just upped the ante. Point number one, treat others like you want to be treated. Second hyperbole, verse 32 and following. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Big deal. Even the sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Big deal. Even the sinners do that. And if you lend to those uh, from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Big deal. Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Here's the point He's trying to make by way of hyperbole. It's on the screen. Dealing with difficult people. And my guess is that as we've started to talk about it, you've had at least one or two difficult people pop in your head. Those people... Dealing with those people in your life is part of your spiritual growth coaching plan given to you by God. So the person that is abrasive to you or difficult for you or or making your life incredibly challenging, God is allowing in your life. Why? Because His primary purpose for you is not that you be comfortable. I'm sorry to say that. His primary purpose for you is that you be Christ-like. And every once in a while, in order to help you be Christ-like, He allows difficulties in your life. He allows challenges in your life. He allows difficult people in your life. Knowing that that will give you an exercise and an opportunity to grow and to mature and to develop character. But when He sends these things your way, when He gives you the blessing of difficult people in your life, and you don't learn your lesson, guess what He's going to do? He's going to wait just a little bit. And then he's going to bless you by giving giving you an even more difficult person to deal with. You're like, crap, I better learn it now. (laughs) And that's the point. Does it mean he's going to take that person out of your life? No, not necessarily. But you will learn your lesson. You will grow in maturity and character. And it will put you in a situation to better deal with that person. Love your enemies. Now, in this chapter, he actually deals with... um, 
three types of people. Just for clarity, we'll put it on the screen. Um, hurtful people, verses 27 to 36. Immoral people, that's what we're going to talk about now, 37 to 42. And then verses 46 to 49, how do you deal with stupid people? Unfortunately, we don't have time for that this morning. Some people in first service are like, I got a lot of stupid people in my life. We got to get to that eventually. Some Sunday, I'll get to that. But now in verse 37, he deals with immoral people. In other words, first section is people that are hurting you. Second section is people that are hurting God. They're living in a life that is contrary to God. What do you do with those people? Let's read that passage, verse 37 and following. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and it will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use will be measured to you. He told them this parable, very famous story. He says, it can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? Students are not above their teacher, but all who are fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say, friend, let me take the speck out of your eye and, and when you yourself fail to see the plank in your eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from the other person's eye. Of all the passages in the Bible, this is one of the most famous famous stories and passages for people who are living in sin or people who don't go to church and want to live their lives however they want. Because any time that you come up to them and you point out to them that what they're doing and how they're living their lives is contrary to how God wants them to live their lives, they're like, hey, 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 judge lest you be judged. Don't judge me. You know, you live your life, I'll live my life, right? Uh, This is between me and God. And they basically misconstrue the idea of what it means to judge and what it doesn't mean to judge. The the word here, judge, the Greek word krino, uh, literally is the idea of, of making a rash, unfair, and unfounded judgment on someone else. It's essentially not you pointing out, you know, what you're doing is wrong. It's you putting yourself in the place of God and almost condemning them. So let me, before I tell you what it is, let me make sure I tell you what it isn't. Let me show you, let's put it on the screen. Do not judge doesn't mean. I know there's a double negative there, but I'm using God's phrase. Do not judge doesn't mean live and let live. It doesn't mean we shouldn't confront sin. It doesn't mean Shut up about what is wrong. Doesn't mean that at all. So, so then what does it mean? How, what am I supposed to do with someone who, who's close to me that is, is doing something that God doesn't want him to do? Let me give you four or five points. First thing, write this down. Don't judge harshly or arrogantly. Don't judge harshly or arrogantly. I've given you up on the screen the two most famous preachers of the 19th century. These guys made a massive impact in the world. They were the Billy Grahams of their day. The guy on the left is a guy called Charles Spurgeon. He lived in England. The guy on the right is D.L. Moody. He came out of Chicago and made a massive difference in the United States of America. Because there was an intercontinental travel the way they are today, these guys didn't really get an opportunity to meet until later in their lives. And the story is told, is told how the, these two great giants of the faith 
and made an impact on the church, what their conversation was like when they first met. As the story is told, Moody was in Europe, and Moody eventually ended up in England. He was invited to Spurgeon's home to have a meal. He goes to Spurgeon's home, knocks on the door. Spurgeon opens the door, and he's got a cigar in one hand and a glass of brandy in another hand. And Moody is aghast and go, How can you, a man of God, smoke and drink? Charles uh, uh, Spurgeon, who was very quick-witted, pointed at Moody's stomach, and he said, just like you, a man of God can be overweight and fat. What's the point? The point is, we tend to be blind to our own vices. We tend to be so good at pointing out what what you're doing is wrong, what you're doing wrong, you need to work on this, but that we don't look at, at ourselves introspectively and understand, I got issues to work on. And what that is, is it's arrogance. It's arrogance. There's a reason Jesus so very quickly, right at the beginning, talks about forgiveness. Forgiving them. Isn't that interesting? We have to forgive someone even if they... This is not in the section on the enemies. They're not doing anything against me, but yet I still have to forgive them for how they're living their life. Remove the arrogance. The other thing is don't judge harshly. Watch your tone when you talk to people. Watch your body posture. Be very careful you're doing it for the right reasons. Don't judge harshly. Do it lovingly. Do it very, very carefully. That's point number one. Point number two, jot this down, is don't judge in a relational vacuum. Don't judge in a relational vacuum. I I highlighted and bolded the key words. Obviously, you see the repetition. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye? Now, this is not talking literally about a sibling. In in those days, and you see in the New Testament, that we are referred to as brothers and sisters in Christ. The idea and the implication here is that there's a relationship. In the newer translations, sometimes this is translated as friend. You see, if you have a, quote, brother in Christ... If you have a friend, if you have someone that you have a relationship with, and they call you up and say, hey, uh, could we go out to coffee this week? Could we sit down at Starbucks? I want to talk to you about something that, that I've observed in your life. Now, what they may say to you may sting. You may not like it. But the reality is you may be more apt to hear them and listen to them because they're your friend. That's what Proverbs says. Proverbs says you can trust the wounds of a friend. Because you know they got your back. They know they care for you. They know that they're bringing this up and it might be awkward for them, but they're doing it because they care for you, they love you, they want the best for you. You have to have a relationship with them. On the other hand, if someone comes up to you that you don't have a clue who they are, you, you, you kind of know them, but not really. You barely know their name. And they say to you, hey, can we get together this week and go to Starbucks? I want to point out a couple of things you need to work on. What's your first instinct? I don't think so. Why? Because there's no relationship there. See, one of the things that we have to realize is that it is not our responsibility to confront everything we see that is inappropriate. It's not your job. It's not your job. On the other hand, on the other hand, if you do have a, a friend that is doing something that is outside of God's will, 
Not only do you have a right, you may even have a responsibility to talk to them. In the Christian community, there are two extremes. Extreme number one, I see you doing something bad. I don't want to deal with it. I'm just like an ostrich, stick my head in the sand and ignore it. One extreme. Other extreme is that anytime I see you doing everything, anything wrong, I'm going to confront you in the name of Jesus. And I'm going to bring my Bible out and pound it on you. You got to find that middle ground. You don't bring up everything because we all got stuff. You could see it in the parking lot at church. From staff members to brand new people. You don't confront everything. But there is, there is this world where you do talk to your friends and you say, can we talk about something? Okay? But, but it has to be in the context of a relationship. You have to have something with them, a connection, okay? The third thing, and really, it's the main thrust of this story, is don't judge hypocritically. Don't judge hypocritically. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Have you ever got a splinter in your finger? Working with wood, you get a splinter. You're out in the wood, you get a splinter. Have you ever got a little piece of sand in your eye? I'm talking about something small, something annoying. A little hangnail. In other words... There's something small in this person's life. Do you, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the two-by-four plank that is in your own eye? Has any of you ever had a two-by-four stuck in your eye? He's speaking in hyperbole. He's trying to make a point. And the point is, some of us have big garbage crap in our life. And we're nitpicking on someone for something small that they're doing. You do know that this is the number one criticism that the world has for us, church-going, Christ-following people. Because sometimes they perceive us as self-righteous. The way we walk, the way we talk, we come across like we're better than they are. We come across like we got our lives all figured out, you know? And, 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 you know, you're going down the tubes, but I, I got Jesus in my life. Now... There's a balance. I hope Jesus is making a difference in your life. I hope you are becoming more like Jesus. But you never want to give off this impression like I got it together. Because we don't. Let's, we don't. I don't. You don't. We don't. We all got stuff. Some of us more than others. But we all have something. You best not come across hypocritically. You best be willing to look at your own garbage as much as other people's garbage. Be honest about that. Sometimes you could, that's all you got to do. Just be honest about that. Yeah, I'm working on it. And, and don't come across as, as, you know, saintly, priestly, okay? Be careful with that. A couple more. Don't judge indiscriminately. I've given you a couple passages from the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Except uh, the one whose faith is weak without quarreling or judging over disputable matters. What are disputable matters? Disputable matters are, 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 are principles you can't necessarily find in here. In other words, you can't find a verse on it. It's just maybe a general principle. Let me give you a couple ideas and suggestions of disputable matters, okay? Um, do you guys remember about 10 to 15 years ago, there were some in the Christian community who thought it was sinful to be associated with or have anything to do with Disney. Do you guys remember that? Disney Corporation had made several uh, decisions as a corporation, as a company, and there was a group of Christians that said, if you watch a Disney film, you're sinning. If you go to Disneyland, Disney World, you're sinning. Do you guys remember this? That's a disputable matter. Show me. 
Show me. Oh, well, it's not there. There was a generation in this country. My grandma was part of this generation. They considered playing cards as sinful. I still remember the day when my, my sister, Becky, and I, we were downstairs in grandma's basement, okay, and we were playing Uno cards. Uno. And grandma came down the steps and saw us playing, and it was, a, it was like that scene from The Exorcist. Her, her head starts spinning, right? Oh my goodness, she lost it over Uno cards. They're disputable matters. There's a, there's, a, there's a group of Christians in America that think it's, it's wrong for women to, to wear certain kinds of clothing. In other words, you're wearing a skirt above your knee, you're sinning. They, they, they believe that men should not have, have earring uh, or long hair. Disputable matters. If you grew up in a conservative Baptist kind of a background, you were not allowed to dance. Because that's going to lead to pregnancy. I mean, that's just the next step. That's just what happens, Right? Let me give you a good one. Disputable matter. How about the, the, the difference between public school or Christian school or homeschool? Oh, that's a wonderful discussion. Have you ever got into a discussion with someone that really believed in one of those instead of another one? By the way, other than homeschool, uh, my family, uh, my wife and I, we've done all of them. And uh, we would do homeschool, but dad doesn't have enough patience. So we have never done homeschool, right? But I remember this one time, um, uh, and I, I, we, we had, I think, all the kids in, in public school. And I had a, uh, a pastor come up to me and say, so, uh, so what's it like uh, sending your kids to hang out with the Philistines every day? <laughs> and me being the very mild-mannered, self-controlled individual that I am, I let them have it in the name of Jesus. Because some people are like that. They think that one way is the only way. And now we've had private Christian school. We've had, but you've got to be careful. How about this? Uh, and this, 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 this falls into the category of disputable matter. H- how about driving an American car versus a foreign car? You go, is that that really big of a deal? Yes, and you, yes, if you live in Michigan. When I lived in Michigan, I remember going to a church and they had people in that church where men had lost their jobs because the factory had closed because so many of us are driving Camrys, Toyotas, and Hondas. Well, you could sort of see their point, I guess. But here's what I'm saying, is if you can't point to a verse, if it's not clear, and there's a lot of clear stuff, but if it's not clear, it's a disputable matter. So you can have a strong opinion on it. That's fine. But don't try and impose it upon someone else. Be careful with that. Does that make sense? Second passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will expose the motives of their heart. In other words, you don't always see or have the entire story. A while back, Ann Landers received a letter from a grocery store clerk. And they were complaining because this grocery store clerk noticed that people were buying what, what he considered to be luxury items with food stamps. And he said, you know, these, these people that are on welfare are being irresponsible. And this is not good. So he wrote this big long letter to Ann Landers and it got published. The very following uh, week, they published some of the answers. I'm going to read those for you. I bought a bag of shrimp with my food stamps, so what? 
My husband had been working at a plant for 15 years when it shut down. I decided to make a shrimp casserole that lasted us for two weeks to both encourage him and to celebrate our wedding anniversary. Next letter. I'm the woman who bought the $17 cake and paid for it with food stamps. The cake was for my little girl's birthday. It'll be her last. She has bone cancer and will most likely be gone in six to eight months. Here's my point. You don't know the whole story, do you? You don't. So if you start getting into a conversation with someone, you best be careful your tone. You best be careful with your timing. And, and, and if something starts to come out that you're like, oh, oh my goodness, I didn't know that, you better put it in reverse about as fast as you can and back your way out. Be careful. Don't judge indiscriminately. Okay? Last point. Write this down. We'll wrap it up with this. Don't judge if restoration is not your ultimate goal. I like how this passage ends. It, it, it basically says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye. In other words, that one issue you're dealing with, that one sin in your life you know you've got to fix, work on it. When you work on it, he says, then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from the other person's eye. What's the assumption? The assumption is that once I fix myself, once I deal with my garbage... Now I'm in a position, and you're in a position, to go help someone else and help them work, with, work on whatever they're dealing with. You don't ignore what they're dealing with, but now you're better suited to help them, to restore them, to bring healing, spiritual healing to them. Let me wrap up by telling you this one story. This past week, my son Joshua, 17-year-old Joshua, had minor surgery. I guess nothing's minor, but he, um, he's been having pain in his side. They decided it was probably uh, an appendix. So they went out and they took his appendix out. We went to Kaiser this past Wednesday. You know, we got there early and they did a good job. And he, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning, his surgery's at 8. He's back to his room by 10. And, you know, he's groggy and he's sore. And, you know, when we get there, they give him a nurse, right, to work with him. And, and you know, I was teasing, teasing him and and his mom, who are very much so rule followers, that this nurse was very much so like like they are. You know, I was calling her Nazi nurse. Because she, very, very firm, and no, can't do this, and you can't drink that, and no, you can't walk to the back. Very firm. Nothing she said was wrong. She was just very firm. You know, so we, I would always just go find another nurse, you know, to help us out. And then, you know, what's something like, but she was very firm. Her job was to provide clinical and medical healing for Joshua. She did a good job. Okay. What was interesting is that after about an hour and a half that Joshua was in the bed, right, and he was still very sore, that um, there was another kind of healing he received. And let me show you by way of a picture. Let's put it on the screen. They had what's called a therapy pet. You've heard of this, right? Some doc- hospitals have this, and they this 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 person from the hospital was walking around with a therapy pet. Right. And asking the different patients in the different room if they wanted the dog to jump up on the bed with 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 them. So they Joshua said yes. And they put the blanket down and the dog jumped up and he scratched, you know, her ears for a little while. Now, that's the first time I had seen him smile in about an hour and a half since he'd been out of surgery. So you've got the nurse whose job was to provide clinical and medical healing. And you have this therapy pet that provided some emotional healing. Question, which one are you most like? Are you more a by-the-book kind of a person, or are you more a touchy-feely kind of a person? Now, before you get to a fire ahead of me, they're, all, they're both good. They're both necessary, right? 
Uh, we typically need people that gives us standards and rules and steps, but we also need someone to give us a hug. Does that make sense? But the ultimate goal for both the nurse and the, the therapy pet was for him to feel better. Okay? Last story, I'm going to end with this. Just before the dog jumped off his bed, I asked the person who handled the, the, the dog, and I asked his nurse, right? I said, by the way, I am just curious. Have you ever heard uh, of a therapy pet uh, being a cat? <laughs> I did. I asked this question. <laughs> so, listen up. This is very important. Um, and the nurse thought, and the therapy pet person thought, and they said, Actually, we have never, ever heard of a cat being a therapy pet. So I took it a little bit further. Why do you think that cats are not therapy pets? And I kid you not, they gave me three reasons. Reason number one, cats are dirtier than dogs. Reason number two, they're not as friendly as dogs. Reason number three, they're harder to train than dogs. So, concluding point, write it down. God wants you to be more like a dog than he wants you to be like a cat. Let's close in a word. Thank you very much. Thank you. Actually, in the first service, the cat people booed me. I thought they were very judgmental. <laughs> Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, the, the first part of our message was tough. Because I was reminding people and drudging up pain that we've buried for quite some time. The reality is that some of us haven't dealt with that pain in a way that is both emotionally healthy or spiritually healthy. The reality is that, Father, um, you asking me to treat someone kindly and speak to them respectfully and pray for them is something that I find, that I think most of us find very, very difficult. I'm praying you give us the strength to do that. Father, I'm praying that you give us the discipline to apply this. In fact, as heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I'm going to give you guys an opportunity to apply part of what we've talked about today, to pray for that person that's difficult and hurtful in your life. I'm going to give you about 15, 20 seconds. I want you to pray for your heart, that you would be open to be kind to them, but I want you to pray for their heart, for spiritual healing, that they would connect with God, that whatever wires are crossed in their soul would get repaired. Take 15 seconds and apply what you've learned today. Pray for them right now. Do it now. Heavenly Father, you've also given us, given us some ideas on what to do with people that we see that are living lives that are not pleasing to you. Father, the reality is that sometimes it really is easier for us to just not say anything. And the reality is that some of us, we're, we're too harsh. We're, we're, we're too blunt. We don't show enough grace. Father, help us find that middle ground. The reality is that some of you, some of, uh, some of us need to be like Nathan with David, King David, who, who approached him and confronted him about living a life of, of adultery. And we have people that we care about in our lives now that are doing things we know are not pleasing to you. 
Father, I pray that you would give us the courage, the right time, and the right words to talk to them. And even if we don't get the words out right, we're confident that your Holy Spirit will get through to them and help them understand that living a life to please you and live for you is worthwhile doing. Father, you've given us a lot of don'ts this morning to not have that conversation harshly, to not be arrogant, to, to not do it outside of a outside of a relationship, to, to not be hypocritical. Father, I pray that you're going to help us do that this week. It's a fine balance to live in that middle ground. I, I pray, Father, that you would teach us and that you would help us to do that. Realizing that these challenging, difficult people that you've placed in our life is to some extent to develop us and to grow us. We love you. As we pray many times at the end of our study time, I'm just so incredibly thankful that your word is practical and that it is helpful to me as I walk out these doors today. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.